Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We are joined by the one and only David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors. Uh, really interesting right now to see uh, bonds continuing to rally, even as we get better than expected uh, data out of China. And there seems to be a growing amount of optimism that perhaps Europe is bottoming. And I have to wonder, has the rally gone too far too fast. Where are you on that? I think the Treasury rally in the United States that has flattened the yield curve, inverted it. Some people would say you just had a previous segment and talking about that. I think it's gone too far too fast. And this whole notion now that we have futures pricing of rate cuts, how recently did we have futures pricing rate hikes? What makes futures pricings gospel? I don't see it. So uh, I think we're in our shop. You know, what do you think is one thing? What do you do in a portfolio is another. We are shortening duration. We are favoring the front end. We've expanded the shorter maturity side of the barbell. We're taking profits in bonds because they've galloped by so many points. And we're shifting a portfolio to defense. So in the high-yield market, that's also had a rally. Do you see any value there? In which market? High-yield? In high-yield. I'm worried about credit. When you spend 10 years at zero interest rates, you you buffer sensitivity. You, you eliminate this notion that there's credit risk. So you see this spreading out of credit risk in spreads, and then it tightens right back up, and people chase yield. And chasing yield in the long run is a bad thing to do. So in our shop, we're favoring higher grade, not high yield. Here's the problem, and and this is something that I think a lot of people are struggling with. There are a lot of signs that we're in late cycle on every level, whether it's equities, whether it's risk assets and credit. And and the problem is, is that that can continue for a long time, right? And this could actually be uh, one of the best parts of the whole rally, especially if there is no sort of disruptive factor. So. Uh, you're, you're, you look, you have consternation written. No, I don't. So, I, so Lisa, what, what? <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, late cycle, sweet spot, 2% growth, no excesses, it appears, low inflation, low interest rates. Uh, it, the markets ignore the geopolitical risk. It's there. They ignore the narrative and volatility of politics. It's there. They ignore Brexit and the charade we call the UK trying to do something. I mean, markets are ignoring this. Well, why? There's a salve. The salve is constant monetary policy with excess liquidity. And now in the United States, that's normalizing. In Europe, they're going to try, in a change of regime after Draghi, to try to normalize interest rates up to zero. So here's the question. Do you have a permanent free lunch of infinite liquidity, and therefore everything's wonderful all the time? Or is there some transfer that's taking place between those who are borrowing long-term 
at low interest rates with some plan or no plan to ever pay it back. And those who are trapped in a paradigm, an institution, for example, that is forced to buy a German government bond with part of its capital by law, is there a trade-off and when it happens? We don't know. Does it get ugly when it does? Maybe. So when you get a massive rally like this, you put some of it in the bank, you earn your 2% on your cash in America, and you say, you know what, risk is rising, and I don't know when it's going to bite. So how much cash are you, have you increased the allocation to? Well, in the bond side, we're moving to the short duration. In the stock side, we run four different types of stock portfolios, and they are in various positions in cash between 15 25%, and the high turnover technical quantitative strategy went to 100% cash wow. last night. Last night. Wait, wait, wait. Please, please elaborate. How much was it in cash before you sold it, out of everything? It's a binary strategy. So it's either fully invested or it's in cash. And it had, it's got phasing. It's intricate math. And the final tranche went to 100% cash yesterday. David Kotak owned a 100% cash in one of his funds. That's Last weird. night. Well, yes. How often does it happen? Well, this strategy can sit in cash for months till it has the right kind of entry. It's, it's quantitative driven. It doesn't have human beings making decisions using their emotions. So no matter what I think, it's the math that'll drive it. When was it. the last time that it was in all cash? Um, last time it was in all cash was last um, fall sometime. We had an entry after the summer sell-off, and we went into the V-drop in cash, so we had a swan song down and back. Interesting. So so it's clear you think the Fed has gone too far. Well, I think, I think the Fed was remarkable. The Fed says we're data-driven. The Fed says we'll look at data, and if it changes, we'll change. And the Fed has said, okay, we're going to pause for a while. That's what the dots are all about. David Kotak, thank you so much. I think we heard this was really interesting. So interesting. interesting. We've you just never hear that going to cash. Well, you know? and it's a, it's a binary strategy yes, exactly. to be it's clear, yeah. uh, which is what David Kotak was saying. But the idea that right now things look a little bit mm-hmm. overdone, even uh, when yep. it comes to someone who doesn't have emotions. Yep, exactly. Which is nice. David Kotak, thank you so much. Thank David's you. the chairman and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors. Uh, always a welcome guest here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Well, financial technology or fintech is one of the hottest areas, not only in technology, but in financial services, and it is impacting companies large and small across the spectrum. To help us kind of dig into this this issue, we welcome Karen Mills. Karen is a senior fellow at Harvard Business School, and she's a former small business administration uh, administrator for President Obama. Uh, Karen, thank you, and welcome uh, to Bloomberg. Really want to get a sense of is. In your book, and the book is entitled Fintech, Small Business, and the American Dream, is it your contention that financial technology is a net positive or net negative for small businesses? 
It's a huge positive for small business. In fact, I think we're at a huge inflection point. You know, we all talk about AI and fintech. Um, and I think one of the places that we're going to see huge change is not in driverless cars, but it is in small business lending. We're going to see the ability of small businesses to have credit at the push of a button. And the players in this are not going to be just your old community bank. It's going to be Apple and Amazon and Square and new fintechs. And then traditional places like JP Morgan are investing, you know, billions of dollars literally in providing new services. So this could be the game changer that small businesses need to get the products and services that meet their needs. So here's my question. We've had peer-to-peer -peer lending uh, that has been going strong and then not so much. Over the number past number of years, we've had an increase in online marketplaces for loans to those small businesses crop up. Why have we not yet seen uh, this sort of crossing of the tipping point with respect to how much this can help small businesses? In the book, I talk about the fintech innovation curve, and you just described like the first phase. In the initial part, we called it the Wild West. You know, we thought everything was going to take off, and then takeoff was aborted because the peer-to-peer uh, -peer lenders, it turned out they weren't actually solving that big a problem. They were making a better customer experience, but they were giving people the same product, maybe at a higher price. So enter big tech, and then you got Amazon and PayPal and Square starting to lend. And then people rethought the whole experience. What happened is that data technology changed so that you could suck up big pools of data through APIs. And now the process is going to be radically different. If you want to understand what's inside a small business, it's very opaque. You know, how do you know this business is really making money? How do you figure it out? You have some poor banker who spends three months sort of figuring it out and then they say, uh, no. So what if all of this went into an algorithm and the lender could say right away, yes or no, and the small business could also at the same time know what's going on in their business. So I think takeoff, we're just at this inflection point and you're gonna see that takeoff you were looking for. Well, how about, the, if I think about the, the small community banks that have been to the backbone of lending to small businesses across America, are you getting a sense that some of these smaller regional banks have the wherewithal to make the investment to get up the technology curve to compete against what will be really tech-driven uh, lending to small businesses. Well, I'm a big fan of small banks and community banks, and from my time at SBA, I saw how important they were to the economy. I would not count them out. What I think is going to happen, and one of my predictions, is that if we get the regulation right, data will be open. So if you give yourself permi your permissions, then anybody can suck up that data. So the winners will be people who can create these platforms, and banks, large and small, they can acquire or use those platforms and you can use your banker for more real advice and counsel rather than that sort of grinded out process of the loan. So I think you, you should not count out the community banks. They should stick around and wait for the fintechs to give them the products they need and just 
partner. Partner with them. Uh, in the meantime, though, you did mention the behemoths, the Amazons of the world. It's really just Amazon and Apple. Uh, I guess I guess Google, but I haven't really heard them getting in on this. But Amazon really stands out to me, especially because so many of these small businesses may use the platform to actually sell their goods. And I'm just wondering, uh, when you talk about sharing this data, and allowing uh, you know potential lenders to see into the inner workings of these small businesses to give more confidence to giving them loans. I assume that's what you're talking about with the data. Um, Amazon has a tremendous leg up because they can see the flows themselves as they lend to uh, their businesses. I mean, they could really consolidate this business, no? If Amazon wanted to play, like in many businesses, they could make a huge mark, and they're already doing three billion or so. And one of the interesting things with Amazon is, are they gonna make the choice to use their balance sheet to really enter this market? So far, they haven't. And Apple, when they came in the market, they partnered with Goldman Sachs. So I think that data is key to the decision-making, but if we get more open access to data, if you could own the stream of information in your bank account and your Amazon flow, and you could make it funnel up into a fintech, then that takes away some of their monopoly power. Why haven't they used their balance sheet? You know, maybe they have too many opportunities. They've got so many things that they're doing. I actually have asked them this question, and I know that they are thinking about it, they're working on it, but one reason is that small business never seems to be the priority. First of all, people look at the consumer market, and then small business is like the poor cousin that gets the dribs and drabs. One of the things I think will happen is that somebody will figure out how to make a small business-focused bank that has different products, different services, and just maybe even a vertical bank just for restaurants or just for dry cleaners. And that way, they'll have the expertise, and I think they will clean up. I think that's a way to uh, win and invest. As more technology comes into banking, is the regulatory framework that we have in this country right now set up to really regulate it properly, in your opinion? Well, the short answer to that is no, and the longer answer is absolutely no. The regulatory system in this country is what I call spaghetti soup. There are seven regulators who oversee small business lending, and In the midst of that, there's overlapping, there's confusion. A lot of people say, well, let's just get rid of all that regulation and then everything will flow and community banks will come back. But that's actually not the answer. It's not less regulation. It's, of course, smart regulation. That means that the new regulations need to think about what's in the black box. Who owns the data? What if a small business gets a rejection? Can they see what went into the algorithm? How are you going to figure out if there's uh, discrimination and disparate impact? So I think the regulatory questions get thornier. Karen Mills, we love having you on. Thank you for being with us. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Karen Mills, a senior fellow at the Harvard Business School, former small business administrator for President Obama from 2009 uh, through 2013, an author most importantly, of a new book, FinTech, Small Business and the American Dream, digging into some of these questions. Well, the news this morning is that BlackRock is launching a massive overhaul of its leadership to help navigate mounting challenges across the asset management industry from global expansion 
to pressure on fees. To help us dig deeper into this story, we welcome Annie Massa. Annie's a Bloomberg Finance reporter. She joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Annie, thanks so much for joining us. Why do you think BlackRock is doing this now? What has really changed in their business? I think that one of the key themes that they're trying to address with this leadership change is the desire to grow globally. So they're the world's largest asset manager already, but a lot of their revenue is focused in the Americas region. And Larry Fink, um, BlackRock CEO, has made a big point of how he wants to keep branching out the business and expand, especially in regions like China. And um, in this uh, news this morning, Latin America is a big focus as well. So the question that I have is how much is this a, a leadership issue, with, or not issue, but a, but a positive uh, sign that BlackRock is being proactive and trying to keep its position as the world's biggest asset management? And how much is this a response and a reflection of the challenges in the broader asset management industry with shrinking uh, fees across the board, with the shift to passive, uh, and just the increased competition? Yeah, asset managers are under a lot of pressure, as you mentioned. Fee pressure is one of the biggest challenges, I think, and especially the large asset managers have just been locked in this um, grinding competition over fees. But, I mean, one solution to that is to develop client relationships in new places and and try to take on more clients um, globally. So I think that that's part of why they're why they're doing this now um, as, as a way to address um, that. So is the expectation, Annie, that as they try to develop new businesses, maybe diversify geographically, that we may see BlackRock, they're already the largest globally, may even get try to get bigger via M&A? Definitely. Um, they've been pursuing um, some deal making uh, globally to to try and advance those goals. And one, one other thing I'll add on on the fee side is they're trying to grow their alternatives business as well. And so while you see this expansion globally, you're also seeing an expansion in terms of the types of offerings that they have for clients and the alternatives has has been a big focus for them. Let's dig into what alternatives is. Are you talking about private equity and distressed debt and hedge funds and things like that? That's exactly right. So one example that we just reported on this week is BlackRock has this long-term private capital vehicle. It's kind of like a private equity type vehicle that they announced last year. So they've secured their first round of funding for this. Um, they, they didn't uh, reach their goals yet. They want to raise as much as 10 to $12 billion. Um, for this vehicle, they've got about um, $2.75 billion but already. What does it say that, that it's taking longer than they had expected? to raise the money for this? It's a challenging environment, and it's not exactly the type of arena that you can um, arrive in and um, you know just take over completely. It, it won't happen in the blink of an eye. Um, so it, it's taking a bit longer than expected, but it shows, I, I mean, especially with the reorg today, it shows that they've got a lot of focus on this and, and they're trying to like meaningfully grow um, in, outside of their gigantic index business. So, Annie, does this also, this management overhaul today, does it also address maybe a succession issue for Larry Fink? Are we kind of setting up a two-horse race here for to succeed Larry? It's it's more than two horses. It's actually a whole stable. Okay. Um, but today today specifically, we've got um, a couple a couple of the people that have been widely seen as in the running were in play here. So um, especially Mark McComb, um, they've created a new role for um, of chief client officer. Um, but there are 
several um, people in the running. And Larry Fink has actually said that he likes to um, look at management this way instead of just having one heir apparent, have a whole bunch of people in um, these higher up roles, shuffle them around. And, um, you know, leadership is kind of about the dynamics um, interpersonally that happen there. Does this reorganization include further layoffs in addition to the 500 announced cuts that they've already made this year? The cuts that were announced earlier this year um, are all that we know of right now. Um, but it, yeah, it is important to note that with the expansion and the reshuffling, um, there, there, were all, there were also those massive um, headcount cuts that came early in January. So anyway, is this... Overall, BlackRock, are they, how profitable are they right now? I'm trying to get a sense of whether this is you know, coming from a position of strength or they're just like, oh boy, our business is really in trouble. Well, I mean, they are the world's largest asset manager. They have the biggest ETF business in the world. So I, I wouldn't say, I, it would be, uh, I think, a stretch to say that they're um, under tons of pressure there. But I mean, asset management changes all the time. This is a business that for 30 years has been, you know, growing through acquisition. And now I think, um, you know, the global focus is really important to them um, as they try to kind of chart the next, um, you know, expansion. Annie Massa, thank you so much for joining us. Annie Massa uh, covers BlackRock and asset management for us here at Bloomberg, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Paul, we talk a lot about 5G and how it can transform the entire communications and, frankly, uh, technological landscape for nations. Certainly the U.S. and China have been sort of facing off in this battle for 5G supremacy. Joining us now is Meredith Meredith Atwell-Baker, CTIA president and CEO, former commissioner of the FCC. She was appointed by President Barack Obama in 2009, uh, serving on the FCC until 2011. Meredith, thank you so much for being with us. So uh, you're saying that you think the U.S. has actually started to take the lead with the race for 5G technology. Please explain. Well, first of all, Lisa and Paul, thanks so much for having me. I'm pleased to be with you guys. Um, and um, what our, our message is, is we're just releasing a paper today from Analysis Recon that says that, uh, you know, a year ago, China and South Korea led the 5G race, but the U.S. was close behind. And really because of the quick actions of our administration and the FCC and Congress, we're, we're, tied, in, we're tied with China overall. U.S. is first in private investment, and we're first in high and low band availability. But overall, we're, we're, we're tied with China. So, what, again, what are really the metrics that you define to say who's winning or losing? Because it was my understanding that not only were we, were we behind China, but we were well behind China. Well, the U.S. leads commercial deployments and will have twice the number of other nations by the end of 2019. And remember that China won't have a single deployment by the end of the year. We're looking at having over 90 deployments. 
All right. So the reason why, one reason why we're raising that is because we spoke with a couple of weeks ago, we spoke with Susan Crawford, who's a Harvard law professor and a former uh, special assistant during the Obama administration as well. Uh, and she just wrote a book saying the coming tech revolution and why America might miss it about how the U.S. is profoundly behind in 5G. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, how how can you give us uh, some confidence uh, as you know, that, that, that what you're saying is is more accurate? Um, well, I mean, the metrics of the paper, uh, certainly the investment of our co- companies is, um, you know, uh, 300. It's going to add, you know, the jobs and the numbers that it's going to uh, add to the economy. It's $391 billion. You talked about the, the um, what it's going to bring to, you know, all, all of the United States. And our numbers are $391 billion and uh, 1.8 million new jobs. Uh, we look at what the companies are investing, and if you look at AT&T and Verizon, the top investing companies in the country, um, and so what they are willing to invest and what they have invested, after the administration had tax reform and after the FCC lowered the barriers for uh, entry for citing these new small cells, uh, companies are quadrupling the number of small cells that they are installing. So I think not only are we looking at it as a global race, we have a race going on here in the United States as to which company is going to be first for 5G deployments. And um, they're, they're engaged in a battle. I guess that there's a question, can the U.S. gain supremacy with 5G without the government actually financing some of this? Does it have to be all driven by corporate spending? Well, the free market is, uh, policies is what have made the difference in our winning 4G. And I but from every indication that we see, it's going to make the um, difference in 5G. So um, we don't. We feel like 5G. We are on a great path for 5G right now, and we don't need anything except for some more mid-band spectrum, which is the the last key to the piece of the 5G puzzle for the carriers. We're speaking with Meredith Atwell Baker, CTIA president and CEO on 5G and the deployment of 5G in the U.S. So, Meredith, maybe just, you know, really a basic point here, maybe for our listeners, is just explain why 5G is important. Yeah, I think that's a, that's great to take it up a step. Um, 5G is the next generation of wireless services. It's going to be 100 times faster. It's going to support 100 times more devices, and it's importantly going to unlock real-time applications, meaning that there's no lag time. So when we talk about, you know, uh, telemedicine, when we talk about autonomous cars, this is really what can transform that. Um, It's going to really, every industry is going to be transformed from healthcare to education. um, And and really, it's going to foster new industries of the future, from augmented reality to artificial intelligence. When we rolled out the 4G technology, we didn't know what we were rolling out. We didn't know that we were going to create a sharing economy and companies like Uber. So while we can see and we're starting to see the real-time case scenarios um, in certain certain um, inventions that we're seeing different entrepreneurs in the 5G world, we still don't exactly know what what it will spark and what it will mean to the entire economy. But we do know, we do know it's the platform for tomorrow's economy, and that's that's why every nation wants to lead in five G. One one question is, you know, if it is setting out the platform for the new economy, why shouldn't there be sort of uh, some sort of oversight, like a utility uh, kind of structure for this, given that it is something that will be and is already so impl- uh, fundamental. To business. Uh, well, it, 
That's a good question. And from a former regulator's point of view, it's certainly something that I have have looked at. But it is the free market policies and it is the innovation of this economy that moves so quickly that it's very hard for some of oversight like utilities um, you, you know, we uh, people get new phones every two years. The network changes every three months. Um, so I think um, we in the United States have come to a regulatory perspective that when something goes wrong, we will fix it. But we don't build a house of regulation around something just in case it happens. Understood. Meredith Atwell Baker, thank you so much. Meredith is a CTIA president and CEO, a former commissioner of the FCC. I think with some interesting data coming out of the CTIA suggesting that the U.S.'s deployment of 5G uh, is not behind those of some of the Asian countries like China and Korea, but in fact, maybe closer to, you may be more on par. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.